he is an internist whose heart lies in the philosophy of osteopathy. He reminds us medicine is both art and science. For both him and Dr. Still, osteopathy begins with anatomy. He visualizes the anatomy as he treats the patient, restoring motion, and more specifically, blood flow. You must know anatomy to find and help restore health. Throughout his many years of clinical experiences, working as an internist and understanding disease processes, he has trained himself to palpate and understand visceral somatic dysfunction. He has a reverence for the patient in front of him, listening and allowing the body to tell him what it needs. He attracts crowds of students during the Evening with the Stars at the annual convocation, so much so that students have asked him to come to teach at their medical school. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Chris Stevenson. This is episode 93 of the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine Podcast, where we share clinical stories and pearls related to osteopathic medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Green, a third-year osteopathic neuromusculoskeletal medicine resident at Michigan State University. Our guest this evening led an adventurous young adult life. In 1991, he worked as a waiter, commercial fisherman, mountaineering instructor, carpenter, mechanic, writer, cattleman, and pig farmer to finance his travel through 48 countries on five different continents. Eventually, he found his way to the Chicago School of Osteopathic Medicine, where he graduated in 1997. He completed his residency and is board certified in internal medicine. For over 20 years, he was the medical director of the Quality of Life Center at the Cancer Treatment Centers of America. He is the principal investigator of a phase one clinical trial to evaluate the safety, tolerability, and pharmacokinetics of high-dose intravenous ascorbic acid in patients with advanced cancer. There are over 270 papers based on this work. He considers this his first contribution to science. The trial was published in the journal Cancer Chemotherapy Pharmacology in July of 2013. Currently, he is practicing internal and osteopathic medicine at an osteopathic group practice called Stillpoint. Since 2010 to the present day, he has been presenting student-requested courses on osteopathic medicine, titled A Day in the Life of Life a comprehensive teaching program providing the why and how of Dr. Still's osteopathic philosophy. We are honored to have him come to MSU in November of this year, and we welcome to the podcast Dr. Chris Stevenson, D.O. Well, thank you very much, Ben, for that, uh, wow, uh, introduction. That's uh, quite something else. I really, uh, really appreciate your thoughtfulness and that uh, soliloquy. Yeah, well, you know, I just... Uh, just took it off your CV. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, I, you know, for what it's worth, too, I, I graduated from Wabash College with a degree in history and literature. So I just throw that on there as a bow. Nice. Nice. Well, Dr. Stevenson, getting right into it. That first question, which is, it's a tough one. Um, how, would you, how would you summarize who you are for the audience in a sentence or two? Uh, once we get into the rest of the discussion, I would simply help you to get the insight of this, that I'm obedient, that I'm grateful, and that after 32 years of study and practice, uh, I'm living the dream. 
and we're going to, I guess we're going to get into what that dream, what that dream entails. Um, okay. What about, what about a book recommendation for the audience? I can't say enough about doing original author studies. Uh, Dr. Still give, has given me tremendous insight. I feel like he's my mentor and that his words are so precise. Uh, it takes a little while to get accustomed to it. I, as a student, it was really hard for me to read anything outside of the things I had to get through. But, uh, you know, he wrote the autobiography first in uh, 1897. He's also written the philosophy and mechanical principles of osteopathy, the philosophy of osteopathy, and then osteopathy research and practice. Each one of these has a unique kind of a uh, niche to them. Um, but overall, his message is missing and lost uh, in contemporary osteopathic education. And it's really unfortunate because so much of what he literally discovered is not understood. The man did not invent osteopathy. He discovered it. And what, you know, so let's not water that down. What did he discover? And that's not being taught. So there are three principles he discovered. And the first one is, hey, let's look for the cause of the problem. Let's not treat the symptoms. If we take care of the cause, when were you last well? That would be Dr. Fulford's question. But when were you last well helps identify what was the mechanism of dis ease. Then number two would be, you know, osteopathy begins with anatomy, ends with anatomy, and all of her lessons are anatomy. So Dr. Still's thought on that is precise. Even to this day, whether you're an MD or a DO, the first class you get in medical school is anatomy. And the reason this is important is that number three, with that understanding of the vasculature, the neurologic, the lymphatic, the other structures within the body, you can position somebody in a way in which perfusion returns to the damaged tissues. You can find health and restore it better by bringing the vessel, its full caliper open, wide open to the tissues to repair everything. And without that, you're seldom going to see any result that's therapeutic or sustainable. Mm, I like that. I love that. So you're a firm believer in that to have a, an efficacious osteopathic treatment, would you say that you need to be cognizant and maybe even imagining visualizing the anatomy beneath your, your hands or beneath your intention, I guess, as well? Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you raise an excellent point, Ben. The, the, the bottom line is uh, when you go to examine any part of the body, you have to recreate below your hand exactly what it is you are trying to see. You know, in surgery, if you have a set of scissors in your hands, the, the strong encouragement is never cut without seeing where your tips are. Um, in a similar way, you've got to dissect through the tissues with your mind's eye check, 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 layer by layer by layer, looking for the organelles, looking for the vasculature, looking for, uh, you know, if you're in the liver, you got to look for the portohepatis. You've got to figure out where the celiac duct is. You've got to be able to see the gallbladder and the false form ligament. You have to be able to see these things uh, in your mind's eyes so that you can carefully dissect them and find out where health is in order to repair the gallbladder after a woman. You know, I, as a, as a, 
surgical student and resident, uh, I was always very disturbed by uh, the language used to describe the four Fs of gallbladder disease because they're very judgmental, not correct. The reason that women get into trouble with their gallbladder disease and have weight issues and have um, fertility issues in their 40s is because in their 20s, in the last trimester of each one of their pregnancies, the child kicked the hell out of their liver and gallbladder. And what happened then is over time with those visceral injuries, perfusion of those organs, the gallbladder and the liver diminished. And over time, going from 100% normal blood flow to 87% blood flow, the body doesn't recover. You know, whenever there's an injury, whether it's emotional or physical, the only response the body has is to recoil, splint, and guard. Well, the same thing is true of a gallbladder that's been kicked repeatedly. Well, over time, that gallbladder diminishes in its function and then becomes atonic and then becomes the focus for the, or the nidus for stone development. And then, then we need to get rid of the gallbladder. But it's not the woman's fault. It's not her diet. It's the fact that she loved her children, carried the child, and then got kicked the hell out of in her gallbladder, and then stood the test of time as long as she could, dealing with that dysfunction. You add to that the fact that they now don't have the bile salts to break down proteins as readily, and they revert to carbohydrates, which are simpler sugars to digest and break down and absorb. You know, it's just a cycle of things. You need to look at the why. And then you can figure mm -hmm. out how and then what it's going to take to restore things. And so when you go in and you release, you know, the celiac trunk off the first branch of the aorta, then lo and behold, the gallbladder comes around and perks up, gets hot as perfusion reoccurs, and that gun and it starts working again. So I mean, it's a long story, but I just want to give an example. Yeah. Wow, that's I'm, – I'm fascinated by what you just said. Now, is this something – is this something that you've just seen clinically again and again? And this is your, this is Dr. Stevenson's theory, or is this well-documented that third trimester, you know, baby is kicking the liver, kicking the gallbladder, bruising it, decreasing perfusion. I mean, it, it makes sense to me. Yeah. No, I, you know, one of the classic things that still says is that, you know, the osteopath has his own unique diagnostics and unique way of looking at things. And I, I clearly see that, you know, I, I'm a Cook County resident. I had my butt kicked for four years. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I finished Humanitarian of the Year at County. My point is, I'm the only osteopath among a bunch of MDs who are from other countries who can quote backwards and forwards anything from Harrison's internal medicine. Um, so, you know, I know what it is to have double one studies. I've published them. I know what it is to do an original research. So to make a long story short, no, none of what I see is, is typically nothing that I see <laughs> uh, meets this criteria. You know, here's an example. Um, in clinical observation, I have a number of women who for 20, 30, 40 years have had chronic back pain and they've gone to their internists, they've gone to OMT, they've gotten their MRIs that show, oh, there's partial, you know, spinal stenosis here, and that's why you're having back pain, and, you know, would you just, you know, stop eating donuts and, you know, go for a walk. Um, and then you make this observation, hey, wait a minute. When I go to palpate both of their kidneys one at a time, 
I realized that the renal parenchyma is very challenged and painful. And though they have a normal creatinine, it appears that when they were pregnant 20, 30, 40 years ago, um, somebody missed a urinary tract infection. And the reason we check urines randomly on women during pregnancy is because they can get these urinary tract infections. And what's a problem is they can become pyelonephritis. So what's wild is that people have these silent pyelonephritis or they have a kidney stone or they've had blunt trauma to the kidney region and the perinephric fat planes don't forget it. And they're on hypervigilance, hyper alert, and they continue to send out stress signals years after the trauma has resolved. So when I have gone in to just hold the perinephric fat planes and then work my way of the spasming from the kidney down the renal pelvis, down the ureter, into the trigone of the bladder, all of a sudden the flank pain the patients had for 40 years is no longer there. I had a 66-year-old female come to me. She's going to go to the promised land, uh, but her doctors didn't know what to do with her. She'd had chronic pain, had been to everybody over 40 years. Once I released her kidneys, all of a sudden, she, and she came down to the office one step at a time. One, you know, we'd leave with the left foot, carry the right. Leave with the left, carry the right. When we were finished releasing her kidneys, this woman was literally running up and down the staircase without any pain whatsoever. It had never been her spine, it had been a visceral somatic response. That's not in a textbook anywhere I've seen. Mm -hmm. And that's not just, I mean, this is, I, I've seen this in so many cases. Uh, in patients who've had kidney stones, it's the same pathology, same kind of thing, and it's not in the literature. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's just a lot you of know, not, not, not to over time, you just don't see anywhere. Right, right. And I'm, and I'm not, um... I'm not trying to take away from the validity, the validity of the stories, the clinical stories and cases that you're telling. I'm just curious um, because that, I mean, that's the question that the medical students now are just raising again and again, you know, and we know that not everything is double blind placebo controlled. And in fact, probably a lot of medicine is not. Um, yeah. Your point's a good one. The times have changed. Um, the, the, concern I have is that um, medicine is an art and it's a science mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's the, it's the broad application of philosophy that has to occur in order to get patients healed. You know, the, the caduceus, uh, that's the staff that the uh, MDs have where the two different snakes are coiled up around the staff. Well, mm -hmm. the one snake represents science and the other one represents art and experience. And the two are in constant opposition with each other for the health of the patient. So this is where you have osteopathy. There's art and science. Uh, the human experience is so unique. There are very few things that are identical in form, whether it's, well, just, we have all unique different things we present to the world with. And so each one of us requires oftentimes a unique set of eyes in order to release the problem. Yeah. Going back to, you know, when I asked you about that, about the book recommendation, you brought up Still and his original works and the importance of reading his original works. Two questions for you. Why do you think osteopathic medical students have lost 
the desire or the interest to read still, or it doesn't seem to be promoted in medical school? And how and why did you personally become interested with Still's original works? Uh, again, my degree is in history and literature. And I always want to know the why of where I come from. So um, as I had said, as a medical student, I was overwhelmed. I had really just gotten off the road. I had spent a year cramming a year of biology, chemistry, physics, and organic in 12 months. And uh, so when I got into medical school three days later, um, I was overwhelmed. And uh, the rest of my medical school was just like that. It was all I could do to tread water uh, while trying to get through the philosophy of osteopathy. Um, but in my second year of medical school, I took a cranial course. And that was so insightful. It gave me such a unique philosophy. And here were guys and girls, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, doctors, um, who had a real respect and reverence for their patients, um, who saw kindness and gentleness without force being very effective at helping people. And so I started looking for mentors in this area who who could model this stuff. And I, I ended up finding out that nobody really recommended this to me. Uh, it was just my seeking uh, I went to a different school that used a lot of force. That was their, you know, it was always HVLA to everything. And it just never made sense because it, if you believe that I'm smarter than you in cracking you and that I will make you better, that it's me that will do this to you, um, then good luck. Um, but I have a reverence for the patient whose life experiences are ways that I will never understand entirely. And so my job is to uh, be alongside of them, support them, and then let their bodies tell me what they need in order to heal. So that's, it's a bit of a different thing. Well, that's still, in Still's writing, he says, don't crunch. Popping does nothing. It, it just, it, it makes a sound, but it doesn't change the course. The patient has to be gently unwound. And that's really, these are themes that he has throughout his writing. Um, and it's, his approach is novel. So as a student, you don't, you know, even at A.T. Still University, they no longer teach a course in the life of Dr. Still. I'm like, what? How do you, you guys don't even teach the history of osteopathy or anything? So I'm like, yeah. I don't understand that. But um, so the, the, my, my point is I started understanding, you know, William Garner Sutherland's work in cranial osteopathy. And he says, look. It's Dr. Still. I just happen to observe some other things and bring it forward. And I believe that the CSF is the highest fluid more beyond the artery, but the artery is, you know, the supreme. So. Okay. Why, why are, you know, why are medical schools like AT still getting away from the history, like our foundation, our roots, the importance of the philosophy? Well, they are not being paid for producing philosophers. They're being paid for producing folks who can pass a board exam and become friends of big pharma. So, you know, we got to follow the money. And that's sadly the case right now. I, um, I went to a school that, you know, they were following the little Johns. They weren't even acknowledging still they're following the little Johns. I'm like, all right, guys, this is, you know, mm. teaching Friad's principles of type one mechanics in the cervical spine. Um, it was not, it was not still embracing.
Yeah. Now, I'm interested in, in why why you say that HVLA is still was not a proponent of HVLA. He was a proponent of unwinding the body, in, in your words. Can you expound on that just a little bit more, Dr. Stevenson? You know, in the right hands of the right operator, anything can work. Uh, there are no absolutes in counter-strain or in cranial or in HVLA or muscle energy. I know you guys are a big muscle energy group out of Michigan State. Yeah, that's um, yeah. So there's a there's a place in you know, a time and a place for everything, and like I said, in the right hands of the, of the operator, anything can work, and there is a time and a place for HVLA. But more the the folks that I have are are far more dealing with chronic injuries, and you're going to bounce off an injury. You're going to crack something, and within three hours, it'll go right back where it was before. Because fascia is stronger than bone. Hmm. Fascia has a memory. It will pull things out. So bone is the hardest of the soft tissues. And it follows the lines of fascia. If there's a fascial distortion, the bones will be pulled out of alignment because of it. So you can go in and pin a fracture and it looks great. And But if you have not unwound the fascial injury, you know, the person's gone through a physiologic and an anatomic barrier and been left now with getting the anti-barrier repaired, but the fascial physiologic barrier still remains not intact. So that isn't going to respond to further force. It's gonna refer, it's gonna respond to gentle positioning to allow for the releases of the fascia, bringing it into position of comfort, then allowing it to go into the vision and beyond the mechanism of the trauma and then recoils and resolves. Got it. My clinical experience, at least. Yeah, I really, I thought that's very insightful. The bone follows the fashion. Nobody has ever told me that, but that resonates with me and makes sense to me a lot. Um, I've gotten a little off track here, so I'm going to, I'm going to kind of rewind a little bit. Um, we got your book recommendation because I, I want to be systematic because I think you have such a unique story. So I want to make sure I don't miss any parts. But um, what about a, a documentary or movie recommendation for us? Uh, you know something? Um, go to YouTube and see the minute and a half video of Dr. Still reducing a shoulder dislocation. That's my movie recommendation. I want you to see that he was a real man, that he had skills, he was affable, smiled, and took care of things. That is the most important thing to realize, that he was a real man who did a real thing. What do you type in for that? Dr. Still, shoulder reduction or something like that? Uh, uh, you would be, okay. Uh, and I'll, I'll try to find it while, while we're yeah. talking. How's that? Yeah, I mean, I can also look it up. I can look it up and put it in the show notes, too. Um, okay. Um, medicine, Dr. Stevenson, why did you why did you want to go into medicine? I mean, you had you had this crazy look. I'm, I'm kind of envious of it, like traveling the world, working as a mountaineer and a pig farmer and a writer. And then so, you ended so, up in medical school. Okay. So, yeah, we got to go back in time here a little bit. Um, so 
I graduated from college with a degree in history and, history and literature. I'm supposed to go to law school at Northwestern to become the next mogul and captain of industry. And I realized in my senior year that this didn't feel right. That's not what I was supposed to do. So after I graduated, I wandered up to Alaska for fishing rigs and canneries and earn uh, money so that I could begin my, my journeys. And uh, I did a, uh, from east around to west, a journey over uh, nine and a half months to um, several countries throughout Europe, Asia, um, and, the, and the Pacific. So I then came back and, um, yeah, let's see, I, I worked as a waiter. So after working as a waiter, I took a bucket flight to London, then up through Bucharest, Romania, and came into Egypt. Uh, where I hitchhiked overland from Egypt, the Sudan, Ethiopia, and into Kenya. And when I got to Kenya, I was out of visas and I needed to get my passport handed off to different consulates. It took, because I didn't have the money, you'd give, a, you'd give your passport to somebody and you have to wait two days to get it back for a stamp. Um, so that was the course. But while I was hanging out in Kenya in the middle of the night, somewhere around two o'clock in the morning, I was awakened um, and told that I was to teach, minister, and heal. And I did not know what that meant. Uh, I kept running around my head that night and into the morning and that day. I'm like, what? I, I was really agitated, really upset. I'm like, what does expletive, expletive, expletive this mean? And then in the middle of the next night, I was told that I was to become a physician. Uh, so I don't like doctors. as. as <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was like, you've got the wrong man. My degree's in history and literature. I didn't study any of the sciences. I don't want to do this. It's not what I want. This is not for me. Um, and I thought it ended there, but it kept coming back, teach, minister, heal. As I wandered throughout the rest of Africa and down to South Africa and then back up through Israel. And it's still every month I'm getting this harmonic in my head. And uh, so eventually, 13 months into this, I'm like, okay, if you let me go to South America, learn Spanish, travel to that continent, when I come home, I will do your bidding. So nine months and three days out of Ecuador, I started the nine-year journey to get the realization to teach minister and heal credentialed properly so I could serve you in this moment. Hmm. Interesting. So when you say awakened, like you were fully asleep and you were awakened and was it just this like voice in your head, like, or this profound, yeah. like sense, sense that I'm, I'm supposed to do this. Um, you know, I was awakened and it was not like in the room, somebody talking to me. It was, I was awakened by this and, um, it, I, I don't know how to describe this, but it came to me. Yeah, and and that's that's just it. It came to me, and it's it, it it's you know I'm not laying in bed. And going, oh. <laughs> well, I'm not laying in bed with somebody talking to me, um, but <laughs> yeah. but uh, but I am saying that <laughs> I am saying that this came to me, and it kept coming to me, and then then it was kind of like. Um, 
okay, I'll do what you need me to do. Let me do this instead. So we made a deal. And this is why I started out with you're asking what's one sentence. And for me, it's obedient. This is not what I wanted to do. And it took me 30 years of struggle, quite frankly. I have for 30 years shook my fist at this. I'm good at this. I'm a really good general internist. I don't mean to brag, but I'm a really solid internist. Mm -hmm. Um, But my heart is in osteopathy. So, yeah, I practice internal medicine, but I really 100% practice osteopathy as it regards the entire canvas of internal medicine and beyond. So um, I'm a little off track here and I apologize, but I was obedient. And so for 30 years, I shook my fist at it. But in the last year, 13, 14 months, I've come to have peace uh, because I now realize that if you were to be injured in my presence, I could save your life or I could help your daughter or your son or your wife uh, out of a bad place. And it occurred to me, that's actually a good skill and that's actually a good thing. And if I didn't have that, would my life have mattered or would I have um, had a good life? And the answer is no. Are you, you're referring to your, your knowledge and skill set as an internist there? I'm, I'm referring to my skill set as an osteopath. I mean, I, the, you know, I've saved lives with with internal medicine. Don't get me wrong. It's a very important skill to have. And you need to know, you know, get the hardest residency you can get, see what hell looks like, see what the darkness is, and know how to pull someone's ass out of it. Um, that's what I want you to do. And because now with that knowledge and experience, you will know when you're carrying somebody osteopathically, do they need the ER right now? Or do I have time to take care of them? You know, as an internist, you always figure out what's going to kill them first. Treat that. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not what they present to you with, but what's going to kill them first. Um, right. So. Yeah, interesting. So teach, minister, and heal. You decide to go to beckon the voice and go to, I guess, why medical school? Because you can teach, minister, and heal doing many different professions. So when I came home from Africa, uh, I have a friend of mine who's a PhD in nutrition. His name is Patrick Quillen. He wrote a book called, you know, Healing Cancer with Nutrition. And I have a lot of respect for him because he's put on some really excellent symposia uh, with a variety of different great thinkers uh, about how to help people with cancer. That was, you know, oncology was a big part of my life for, you know, 20 some odd years. Uh, so... Um, I said, Pat, you know, I, I don't know what's happening. He's, he was a Christian. And I said, Pat, I don't know what's happened. I, I had this weird experience while I was in Africa. I had all these really cool things I said. And, you know, after telling him about all the things I did, I said, you know, and I've got this weird thing. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with it. If I'm, I, Do I become a physical therapist, a chiropractor, an MD? He goes, no, 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 no. You become an osteopath and you can do everything that way. So that one chance walk with a friend of mine with a PhD in nutrition is what changed my life towards osteopathy. Wow. Wow. So he obviously was familiar with osteopathy, knew about it, knew who you were and set you down that path. That's incredible. Yeah. And he also, he also helped me identify my mentor in medicine, a guy named Grant Bourne out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. And his wife, Tammy Bourne is a remarkable 
clinician. If you can spend time in Grand Rapids on 52nd Street, the Warren Clinic as a resident, I would certainly recommend it. You're not going to find finer physicians, but uh, Grant uh, was my dear friend. And, uh, you know, the most important thing that Grant shared with me uh, was that the most important thing about caring for your patient is caring about them. And uh, that was very simpatico with my beliefs. Mm-hmm. What kind of physicians are they? Family practice predominantly. Okay. Uh, Grant was unique in that he brought laser to Michigan before it was known. He also did a lot of work in gynecology and colposcopy, recording images of cervixes. All of his patients, I mean, he took Nikon pictures of every cervix he took care of uh, over his career, so that there was a um, a history, uh, you know, a studied. This is, you know, this is before we had, you know, computers and everything like that. He was, mm-hmm. you know, doing these things with what he had available to him. Wow. And they're still practicing there in Grand Rapids. Yeah, Tammy is. I, I, sadly, Grant, uh, interesting story here. Grant, at 42, was told you have advanced cardiovascular disease, went mm-hmm. to Mayo, had a four-vessel bypass, and had lost about 35% of his heart's function, so uh, damage to the LAD. And he was told, you know, Grant, you have about three months left. I would recommend you go home and get your affairs in order. Um, and so he came home and talked with his patients. And each one said, you know, I'm, I'm going to be closing my practice. And, and then one of them said, hey, Grant, have you ever heard about chelation therapy? Well, being an outdoorsman there in Michigan, he had been exposed to a lot of heavy metals um, and had heavy metal toxicities in his body he wasn't aware of. So he started chelation therapy, gave himself about 134 of them before he developed uh, allergy to the darn things. Uh, but by then, he'd gotten rid of his angina, was up walking around uh, doing things that reversed a lot of the peripheral vascular disease symptoms he had and no longer had discomfort. So he ended up living 18 years beyond his terminal diagnosis wow. because of chelation therapy. And I, along the way, he also did a lot of work in allergy immunology, did a lot of work in female health and estrogen replacement and you know all these things that were avant-garde for his time he was actually the chair of the staff at um, grand rapids general hospital and then once he started chelation therapy they excused him from the hospital staff <laughs> hmm. so wow the mysteries of life huh wow yeah it's it's amazing how the stories go yeah yeah and this is why this here so exactly so now you know the why this is why it's so important to study what did still say what did he discover once you have his why then you can understand the power of your hands and your mind and your heart and healing others yeah absolutely absolutely i feel like osteopathic medicine really starts with the practitioner actually like knowing themselves you know finding peace with who they are grounding themselves, filling themselves with gratitude, studying human energy, and um, yeah, being fully present in the visit with your patient. Um, I, you know, I think, you know, Ben, I think you're onto something. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I see it in myself, you know, if I, I'm worried about something, whatever that may be and i'm in a patient encounter you know i'm just i'm just not there and i I feel like with osteopathic medicine when you're you're 
in a person's personal space and they they allow you to enter into that space hoping that you're empathetic and you're knowledgeable um i think they also sense when you're when you're not there or when there's kind of internal turmoil going on um so, so ben how far away are you from your patient before you've started a relationship with them i'm not sure how to answer that question all right, I'll rephrase it. At what distance from an individual have you started a relationship? Um, you know, as far as like a personal relationship, I think as soon as as soon as you make eye contact with them. Um, as as far as like a doctor management, you know, doctor patient relationship, I feel like as soon as they get put on my schedule and I start looking at their history. There you go. Well, I one of the one of the things that's been observed in the hospitality industry is that the moment within three meters or about ten feet of distance from somebody you've never met before, the relationship is established. Hmm. So, uh, and to your point too, um, people know when they're being looked at; they can feel it. And mm -hmm. another thing that's really interesting perceptually is that a mother of an 18 year old child will know when that child's in distress because she will know the child's vibration uniquely his or hers. And typically if you ask them, yeah, yeah. And I, my mom calls me every time I'm down <laughs> or something like, you know, it's like, there's a, there's a perception and a connection that never leaves us. And to your prior point, yes. If you are, you know, patients can sense if you're not there with them when you're examining them or, you know, if you're off wandering somewhere else in your mind, um, you have to do what you can to pull yourself back into the uh, relationship. Or, yeah. Or, you know, even if you're just not at peace, there's turmoil going on, whether that's, you know, a relationship with your significant other or a legal issue or, you know, whatever that may be, your ego. I don't know. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. If we're distracted, if there's something else taking us off point, it's because yeah. uh, your, your perceptions won't be intact. You know, you'll. Right. That's right. Um, they'll realize that something's wrong or whatever. You know, it's you've got to maintain, you know, a certain sense of certainty with your touch and a certain sense of, hey, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm right here with you. Uh, and yeah. that that is understood by the patient. And they'll look at you cross-eyed if, if they feel you're not at that part of the level of the, uh, yeah. of the relationship. Definitely. So, Dr. Stevenson, after you got into Chicago... School of Osteopathic Medicine, what was your experience like with OMT? Was it something that you were on board with from the beginning or was it you were a little bit standoff from the get-go? Well, I'm, I'm blessed to have a tactile skill and if the vacuum cleaner is broken, I can typically figure out how to repair it. Or if I'm working with a V8 motor, I can kind of tell you where the valve is stuck. Um, so I was intuitively in tune with um, osteopathy, and I was dissatisfied that my teachers couldn't teach. Um, and you know, the, it's one thing to teach, another thing to do. And I had problems. I'd come off a bicycle at 30 miles an hour in Hawaii when I was training for a triathlon and banged up my right knee really badly. And, uh, <laughs> I got through all of medical school without anybody being able to help me out. And, 
I actually, a Russian physiatrist finally unlocked the fibula, uh, which allowed for me to flex and extend my knee again. So, you know, it, again, healing comes from different ways, but my, my training at, at CTC, I'm sorry, my training at um, Chicago was more based in HVLA. Dr. Kapler was the king of crunch. And uh, so we learned that technique uh, well, but it never suited me. So I, like I said, I found I found a home in cranial, uh, which was more indirect, gentle, and respecting the fascia and counter strain approaches, and that was that became very powerful for me. And now when I go to teach, people think it's it's counter strain on steroids, because it doesn't require force; it requires just gentleness and reading the fascia and letting the body heal itself. Hmm. Yeah, I'm really excited I, to experience this for Michigan in a month. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. Yeah. You decide internal medicine, or, or let, me, let me back up a little bit. Third and fourth year of medical school, when you're in the clinic, in the hospital, you have the opportunity to use OMT. Did you want to use OMT? Any experiences that you want to share with us? Okay. The key thing here that you must tell any attending watching you or patient or whatever the most important thing you can do at the bedside is tell them you are examining the patient. <laughs> you tell them you're examining the patient, they're going to interfere with you. It's a good idea not to crunch somebody, but you can examine them, quote unquote, while doing muscle energy or doing counter strain. Or in this case, counter strain is so not offensive. And does it feel better if I'm examining here and or here? If, you know, say you're looking, you know, you're worried about the spleen. If, <laughs> whatever you know let it come to you but you the the key expression that you need to share with your attendings or whomever is in the md cast is i'm examining the patient because you are and you can't be faulted for examining the patient mm -hmm. so uh, if that makes sense i mean uh, there are ways of discreetly yeah. taking care of people without sure um you know without force and that's really, honestly, in the hospital, you know, if you've got somebody on a ventilator and you do a little CV4 and you do a little rib raising, uh, lo and behold, you can get quite a bit accomplished. Hmm. Compression, that fourth ventricle, it's good stuff. That on many ventilated patients in the hospital? I did. Yeah, my, my patients got everything I could give them. Uh, I, had a, I had a lot of very sick people with stage four cancer. So I brought everything I could to the bedside. I told the, the family what I was doing. Um, and, you know, I, had, I always had permission of the patient or the, they, everybody knew what I was doing. I was not hiding anything. Um, but, you know, it's, they not, some of you have never seen it before, but I was blessed after all the years I've been in the hospital, I'd taken care of all the nurses. I'd taken care of several people who had, you know, they'd had tailbone injuries that no one could help them with. And, Right, you, know, you build, you know, just have to be present over time. It just takes time. You're talking about when you were in the cancer centers of America. Yeah, yeah. That, in that, I'm, you know, I, I had to, I had to. <laughs> okay, there were seven osteopaths who started at Cook County Hospital's internal medicine residency. Only two of us finished. That was a very hard program, and it was not DO friendly. So I was not. 
the answer is yes, I examined patients, but I didn't examine osteopathically every patient. I just couldn't afford to. Yeah, got it. Um, what, what else would you like to share with us? Your years at the, I mean, you were at Cancer Centers of America for over 20 years. Anything? Yeah, so, so, so go, going back to your early question, you had said, why internal medicine, I believe was the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so because I developed this affinity for osteopathy and I had a friend who talked about chelation therapy and it saved his life and the power of nutrition and the power of the mind-body connection, back in the time, that was not necessarily something that was wildly embraced and still isn't to this day. So I had to choose the hardest residency that I could in order to demonstrate that, um, hey, Dr. Stevenson's good guy. You know, he's 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 earned his stripes. So that's why I did internal medicine, and uh, and it was really hard. Uh, I would, but after you know, after residency, I became a home birth physician as well. I love delivering babies. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was family practice, but you know, you know well, you, you choose what you chose. Um, and I'm sorry, where where were your other question there? I lost you. Uh, Cancer Centers of America. Any experiences oh, yeah, you want to give us from those? Yeah. All right. So, Cancer Treatment Centers of America was perhaps one of the most compelling times of my life taking care of stage four cancer patients uh, who come to you at destination hospital, people coming in from Arkansas, people coming from Wyoming, New England, it didn't matter. People are coming for hope. And the power of hope is the number one message that I cannot emphasize enough. When people have hope, they have a chance at life. Without hope, they will die. So hope is a smile. Hope is looking them in the eyes and saying, I'm gonna be here with you and holding their hand. Hope is I'm not going to leave you. Hope is, um, damn it to hell, if you want to fight, I'm going to fight alongside of you and we're going to do all that we can to save your life and give you more of it. So it's like a tenacity you have to develop in a stage four cancer environment that, uh, yeah, there's a time and place when God calls us home and you have to accept that. But short of that, you've got to be creative. So the one thing that it taught me was that no one's going to solve a problem quite the guy who's got it or girl who's got it. It's going, every problem requires a unique set of eyes. And yes, if I've got a Sunday cholangitis, I, I need uh, to use uh, Zosin. I, it was uh, back in the time as, you know, vancomycin and Zosin were your friends for Sunday cholangitis. I made that diagnosis only once in my residency. I made that diagnosis three times a week taking care of cancer patients. Um, so, the, the whole idea, though, is that patients have been treated by XYZ facilities before they got to Zion. And, you know, my job was to, you know, clear the slate. Whatever I have to do to get them back on their feet to become candidates for care, um, that's what I was to do. So it, it really taught me to be very industrious and problem solving. And then this is where osteopathy came in handy. I, there were so many people who had been in tractable pain breast cancer patients. No one taught me how to take care of a breast cancer patient. These poor women have been on their backs, supine, getting their right or left arm raised to 100 degrees so that the doctor 
would or operator would have the chance to get in for a good window. So the arm would be overhead, the ventilator would be working, inhale, exhale. Sometimes they'd over overfill the lungs. So the woman would have her arm brought back down to her side after the procedure, extubated and fine. Oh, she's survived her breast, you know, she's survived breast cancer. Well, yes, and for the rest of her life, she goes to bed and takes 90 minutes to get to sleep. Then 90 minutes later, she wakes back up again in intractable pain, repositions herself through the night, falls asleep, wakes back up, falls asleep, wakes back up because of what I ended up determining to be inhale ribs. So using counter-strain concepts, I was able to unlock these women's chest walls. And that was one of my, like, I gave symposia on this. I, I taught everything I could with plastic surgeons and others about how they need to be careful with, you know, the arm position of a woman during mastectomies. Mm-hmm. So to make a long story short, um, it taught me how to take care of chest wall wounds, abdominal wounds, and other kinds of wounds that were apparent after ma- massive accenturations. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was very educational and and very helpful because patients could get their procedure done and no longer be in pain or could stand up straight after abdominal surgery, um, all these different things. So, and, and how did you learn these techniques? Were you taking courses or... Is this just something that you developed on your own? This is Dr. Still's philosophy, absorbing his philosophy, seeing his, his walking in his shoes and seeing how you must see the tissue below your hands. You must recreate the problem. You must be able to see what was the mechanism of the injury so that you can then unwind the injury. Uh, and it just comes with time, but it really does come with philosophy. You're not going to get, this is not a technique. This is a philosophy, and once you understand the philosophy, then you can do anything. Um, again, the philosophy three points are look for the cause, know your anatomy, and restore blood flow. Uh, without that, you're very little effective. It's not a, you know, it's not a, it's not a technique, but it is requiring gentleness, and it is based for me on counter strain. That principal concept of just simply putting people into a position of comfort and letting their bodies unlock and unwind. It does take time to learn this skill, but it's learnable. Yeah. Why why do you think putting the position, putting the patient in that position of counter strain allows the body to unwind? Is that, are you just taking all the, the fascial tension out of the system and just letting it then freely move where it wants to move? When a patient is driving a car down the expressway and they go off the right shoulder and the car pitches down into the cul-de-sac culvert um, and there's an abrupt stop, if you can repeat in your mind's eye what was going on as the right, as the left shoulder belt was engaged and the body was being twisted diagonally over it while being twisted to the right with the legs translating toward the ditch, if you can see that in your mind's eye and then put the patient back into that similar position of the accident and the torque, then you can help eliminate it. One of the key concepts I'd like to share with you is what you learned back in physics years ago. And that is that the third law of dynamics shows that energy is neither gained nor lost, it is only exchanged. These folks who've had a high velocity kinetic energy accident 
go from momentum, momentum, momentum to abrupt transfer of kinetic energy into potential energy, which is retained in the tissues. It has been my experience, especially with fractures, arms and legs, that when you put somebody back in the way in which they were traumatized and you take all the load off of that injury to the point where that injury, which was 7 out of 10, now is 0 out of 10, well, hold on. When you hold that arm or leg or torso in that position, you will all of a sudden feel within about a minute a jerk and a thrust and an extension and a release of the fascial dis dysfunction. The body knows how to heal itself. Our job is to work alongside of it, to mirror it, and then help it get through its paces. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I have definitely heard that before from different osteopathic schools of thought, like the fascial distortion model. They talk about some, I mean, precisely what you're saying, recreating injury, particularly folding and unfolding distortions, um, recreating that compressive force and allowing the fascia to unwind by doing that. So it's, yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about it as well. You know, there's so many different schools of, there are the principles of osteopathy, but then there are so many different branches. And I feel like there's a lot of overlap and maybe, maybe we're saying the same thing with different words. I'm not sure. Well, fascia distortion is not counter strain. It's very painful and it's very invasive. <laughs> Well, uh, anyway, <laughs> you know, my, 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 my point is that, yes, as I said before, um, anything works in the hands of the right operator who is t attentive, you know, who, who maintains the tenants we've discussed, uh, committed to their patient, can hear things. Um, it's just been my experience, though, that using force on somebody is never going to work hmm. unless you have the exact components of the mechanism of the injury and you can correct you know, restoring that physical connection. But again, in old injuries, that I've never seen that work uh, effectively for long. Yeah, interesting. Okay, um, Dr. Stevenson, where do we go next? So you did 20, 21, 22 years. And now you are in a practice, an osteopathic practice, I guess internal medicine and osteopathic practice called still point can you talk to us about that transition and what it's been like to work in that clinic uh since covid uh, i've left the hospital and um i have a small little practice here i've kind of borrowed viola Freiman. i don't know well, viola was a, a remarkable woman who was one of the pioneers in pediatric osteopathy and uh, was a seeker and one thing I'd like to share is that it, whatever whatever principle you start with, keep seeking, refine it, make it better, make it yours. Um, it, it, that's what this is about. It, don't don't settle. Uh, you may start somewhere and then realize over time that okay, this is far more effective. Or if I integrate this idea with this and make a bridge, that's better. But Viola Freiman always spoke of the fact that she was in a group practice. And though she was the only one in the office, she prayed for her patients. 
She thought about her patients and she basically internalized her patients before she saw them. So in a similar light, I have a, you know, colleagues who are working with me, but when I say group practice, I know that I'm not the only one in the room helping out. So, and it's the patient, the patient themselves are part of the group. They have to be willing to be well. Uh, some folks just don't want to be well. They have secondary gain. It's very sad when you encounter it because you're never going to get them well because they don't want that for themselves. So in that way, it's a group practice as well. Um, but for me, I'm living the dream right now because <laughs> oh, this is kind of a funny story. Um, about 13 years ago, we went live with the electronic health record, the EHR, and I was being crushed by it. I uh, had a, a role in the hospital that required me to be you know, on a pedestal of skill sets and doing things because if Dr. Stevenson didn't do it, why should I have to? So it was killing me. And it meant that I was up till two in the morning uh, you know, trying to type these damn notes. And um, it was pretty funny. Along this time, in order to divert my anger, I started polishing shoes. So I'm a very <laughs> adept shoe polisher because of the EHR. Um, Polish or shoes or other people's shoes? Both, both. And my <laughs> wife gave me one of those very uh, executive style chairs that people i've had visiting doctors others come to the house and i'll put them up in the chair with the brass foot pegs and i polish her shoes for them um but that's aside from the point my, my point <laughs> is uh in my private practice i now get a chance to take pieces of paper and a pencil like dr still would do and record the notes on a piece of paper with a pencil uh so that i'm living the dream because i get to end work at five o'clock and uh, the patients are satisfied. I'm happy, and <laughs> I get to go and have dinner with my wife. So. <laughs> Hindsight's twenty twenty. Do you wish you would have done this earlier? I wish I would have left medicine and I wish what I'd done what earlier. I'm sorry. Started your practice earlier. Uh, you know, no, I, I, I really had a, a need to be in the hospital. That was a time in my life that I needed to have. Um, you know, I did a lot of critical things and there was a need for me to be there. And then I could hand it off to somebody else and that was good, but it wasn't, I, I, you know, you, if you listen to your heart and you follow what you're called to do, then do it. Don't run away from it. If it's, if you're called to serve that person and you're exhausted, but you need to, you need to, you know, there are things you don't want to do, but you have to do uh, in medicine. And, you know, there's that one person I'll, I'll never forget being in my residency and there's a man who's destitute and downtrodden, smells bad, smelling of alcohol, and he's got literally maggots falling out of various orifices of his body. And I needed, he needed me to be there. He needed me to be his friend. And so I knew it. I contacted, show me what I need to do. And I helped him. Um, and you know i'll never forget him so you know and there's another time i don't want to go into all the different times sorry but there's a time and a place when you need to step up you see it don't walk away from it and you need to be present well that was kind of what my role was in the hospital for all those years mm -hmm. i see i'm sorry did you want to add something else you know, I, what I've been trying to do, I mean, there's some really rough stories and I don't, you know, there's a time and a place, maybe over a beer, we can share some of the harder stories. Okay.
yeah when you're when you're visiting us here in Michigan in a month um you know since 2010 you've been doing a student requested course and you've been traveling all over the country to different medical schools teaching them a day course called a day in the life of life can you talk to us a little bit about how this course originated and and what it entails uh, certainly. Um, when I was in medical school, the American Academy of Osteopathy used to sponsor vi visiting clinicians. You know, there were fewer hot, there were fewer colleges at the time, and so, you know, Phil Green, Phil Greenman from Michigan State came uh, to Chicago and talked about uh, his ideas on sacral pathology, and then you know Mike Kuchera came in, and other you know other dignitaries from osteopathic uh, skills or whatever came in share their experiences and then that dried up. So I remembered though, wanting to pay it forward at that time, but it's just, I didn't know anything. So John Glover was the chair of Vallejo, California's Toro University back 10 years ago, 14 years ago. And we were in Colorado Springs. He brought 70 students to convocation and it just happened that they all thronged me. I mean, I was having night of the stars and I would have no less than 30 students around me as I was showing them different things. And, you know, it'd be like, and you, and you can't be a Toro student unless you've had some horrific accident, hit by a bus, you know, been in <laughs> rapids where you got nearly drowned. You know, it was just I'm like every, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, the ankle of this person's on fire and when the accident occurred six months ago, okay, well, it's like a brand new accident. So, um, they said, Dr. Stevenson, nobody does what you do. Can you, can you come to uh, Vallejo and and teach us for a weekend or something? And so I said, sure. So that was the genesis of a day in the life of life. And what I was seeking to do was to teach what did doctors still say, and then apply it to every region of the body from the time you were born and to the tip of your head to the top, to the end of your toes, and everything in between. So I. You know, talked of, you know, home birth and how to help a woman be protected from, you know, medical traumas and how do you help, a, a, you know, any kind of a scenario. I talked about oncology circumstances and how to take care of, you know, pancreatic pathologies and how do you take care of a lung, you know, or postoperative chest wall syndrome. So, you know, it's it's all of these different things are what were part of the first teaching and then I literally have been from coast to coast and many states in between at all the different schools teaching this program as requested. I typically, you know, will meet people at a convocation and they'll say, can you come to my school? And, and so I've also, I've also taught at state, uh, like I've taught in Tennessee at the Osprey Medical Association there and elsewhere. So, but it, you know, it's all, it's all based on what, what did doctors still say, what did he observe, and then I can go forward from there. I see. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of, you know, what happened to us at Michigan State. One of our, our graduating or, or, or residents that graduated last year um, was being treated by you and was just very impressed by the efficacy of the treatments. And, you know, he he's like, we got to get Dr. Stevenson here to, to MSU to teach a weekend course. So. That's thank you, Dr. Barnhurst. <laughs> yeah, it, it's so funny. Uh, he's, a, he's a good guy, and 
Well, you're not supposed to talk about your patients, uh, but you know, he's just a, a great guy who really understands what the word means of, I'm sorry, what the word compassion means mm -hmm. uh, for others because he's been there himself. Yeah, absolutely. He's a great resident, good friend. Oh, uh, well, great, Dr. Stevenson. Any other clinical stories, clinical pearls, words of wisdom that you have for our audience? Uh, well, you know, we started this discussion early about things like um, double blind placebo, all that. Well, you have so many folks who are getting epidurals for delivering their babies. It's like a common thing. It's like, oh, yeah, just get an epidural. It's fine. Well, I've had a number of patients who cannot get out of their chair for 17 years without lifting themselves out of the chair after an epidural. So um, by simply holding the sacrum in your right hand and the lumbar spine in your left, bridging those two together and feeling for the pinpoint insertion side of the needle, you will, you will make very, very many people ha much happier um, uh, than they were before. So that's <laughs> just, that is like gold. Um, you know, I've got all the, I've got a whole bunch of different stories I'd love to share with you, but um, talking about kidneys and talking about epidurals, have, just if I did nothing other than that in my life, I will have done so much for people. But that's, you know, it's like, you know, everything comes from me in phases. It's really pretty funny. I, uh, I had, I think a two month run by every foot pathology was because of the flexor digitorum longus. I'm like, what? Every, <laughs> everybody hmm. had this thing. And you go, does it hurt right here on the inside of the upper tibia and the medial aspect of the tibia right here? And do you feel it down on the toes? Yes, I do. That's exactly where the pain is. And you're like, all right, so I've never seen this as a pathology. And also I've got <laughs> two months of it. Uh, <laughs> as a, you know, everyone who came up with a foot or ankle issue at least had that problem associated with it. But, you know, this general trends, it's pretty funny. You'll see in your practice, general trends occur over and over again for six weeks, and then it's on to the next thing. So. Yeah. Well, Dr. Stevenson, I really, I really appreciate you sharing these stories, um, sharing your wisdom um, about, you know, those three principles of, you know, trying to get to the underlying cause of the patient's discomfort, understanding their history to knowing human anatomy and, and visualizing the human anatomy as you're treating it. And then, you know, restoring blood flow. I really, I guess that was my, my big, big takeaway from our conversation tonight. Um, that's great. Yeah. One of the things that's really amazing is that once you, as you're restoring vascular integrity, you'll people get, you will feel people get on fire. I mean, you'll see flushing of their face. You'll feel heat resonate throughout whatever the damaged region is. Um, sometimes the purge of the blood is so significant that they go into tetany because the plasma is redistributed abruptly into these injured tissues, magnesium and other minerals are being sucked up and people can't help with everything then going in a tetanus state until the magnesium redistributes itself again. Um, I mean, so these things are what I really want to show students so that they can feel for themselves what it is that still was talking about because I never saw it anywhere else. Yeah. Well, I'm excited. And I know many of the residents are excited to have you come and teach the course and experience for ourselves everything that you've talked about tonight and, and learn from you and your 
your knowledge and clinical experience. So yeah, thanks again. Thanks also for, you know, just being so generous with your time and sharing osteopathy with so many osteopathic medical students and, and keeping alive Dr. Still's philosophies. Well, you're gracious. Uh, you're welcome. And it was my honor to be able to talk with you, Ben. You've been a delight and I appreciate your shepherding this and more importantly, your interest in seeking who uh, experiences that in your own, you know, path, you'll be able to uh, help many others seek and understand things that they uh, need revelation for. So thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Is it, is it okay, Dr. Stevenson, if I include your email in the show notes, if any students or any physicians, any, anybody wants to reach out to you? As long as the law officials are not listening, I'm fine. <laughs> I, I won't hand out your cell phone number. Don't worry. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, that, that's fine. And, you know, it, whatever I can do, I, uh, yeah, I, I would welcome the chance to visit with students. As we talked about earlier, I would love to have the students with us as well. Uh, my largest audience is, um, you know, up to 65. My uh, course starts at 8 o'clock in the morning, wraps up precisely at 5 o'clock. But my longest run has been up until 11.15 at night. So at convocation, I will stand up and be up all night long with students until the last one is standing, and then I will turn in. It's that important to me that we understand these concepts and that we can be made better because of osteopathy. Yeah, I appreciate you reminding me about that. I'll, I will get in contact tomorrow with our president of the SAO so that um, they can promote that. Hopefully they don't have any exams that week so that more students can, can join us. Any, any plugs that you wanted to make? I forgot to ask you about that. Um, any, any plugs for the day in the life of life or anything, anything that you would like. And if you don't have any, that's fine too. Life is short, surprisingly so. And if it's in your heart, Please listen to that voice and act from it. Great. Words of wisdom from Dr. Stevenson. Greatly appreciate it. Greatly appreciate your time and excited to see you and uh, learn from you in November. Thank you, Ben, for your time. I appreciate your enthusiasm here. Okay. Thanks, Dr. Steven. Have a great evening. All right. Bye-bye now. Hope you enjoyed this conversation and took away some clinical pearls. Email Dr. Stevenson if you have any follow-up questions at chris.stevenson at brownlegacy.com. You can find his email in the show notes. Reach out to the podcast if you would like to be a guest or have any questions or comments at onmmpodcast at gmail.com. And just to let you know, we will be out taking a few weeks hiatus as I'm out on audition rotation for sports medicine, but we'll pick back up in November.